Welcome to the Xanadu Cinema Pleasure Dome with Melissa Kirscher and Wendy Bowlesby. Welcome, dear listeners, to Xanadu Cinema Pleasure Dome. This is Melissa, and my co-host here is... Windy. Although, saying here is kind of a misnomer, because Windy is across the country from me. What? It's almost a continent away. Ah. It's true. It's it's a very long ways away. It's like 1,178 miles. You should know you've driven it off enough. A lot. I've driven it a lot. So, yes, uh, once again, we are recording remotely through the powers of technology and uh, doing our best to make it sound okay for you guys. So, yeah. A little Doppler for you. Yeah, and uh, the the video feed was very interesting for a moment there. (laughs) (laughs) I bet it was. I bet it was. So, Wendy. Oh, excellent. What are you what are you drinking right now? I'm still on red wine cuz I'm always on red wine. I feel like red wine is my life and there are worse lives to have. I am uh I'm drinking this Norton Barrel Select which I love the fact that they say select because they didn't cuz that's like, bullshit. Select, <laughs> yeah, select implies that you selected something and they're like um it's sort of a Malbec, kind of a Merlot, maybe it's a Cab so we don't know. Drink it, it's fucking red. You know what? I am drinking it and it's fucking red. I have to say, for all of my bitching, it's drinkable. So, you know, <laughs> it's fine. Meanwhile, um, when I brought my glass up before we started recording, Wendy goes, are you just drinking orange juice? And I go, no, it's a screwdriver. And she goes, okay, that's good. <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. That's so, acceptable. So I'm drinking orange juice with uh, New Amsterdam vodka, which is uh, an inexpensive but very good vodka. Their uh their vodka and their gin is uh very very good for for budget options. Okay, good I to know. Like good that. to know. Yeah, like like even Jerry Bellish really enjoys the gin. So I oh, I can't do gin. Gin yeah. makes me sick. But it's good to know about the vodka. Mm-hmm. You know what goes good with orange juice? Hmm. Sake. Sake is very good with the uh, orange juice. Listeners, if you haven't tried a sake screwdriver, you have been missing out. It's very drinkable. Melissa, what are we going to talk about tonight, today, this episode? Whenever you're listening to this is the day, is the time, the time is now. We are going to be talking about (laughs) (laughs) documentaries. Yay! Yay. So, yes, yes, um, I'm a big documentary nerd, as it turns out. So, uh, let's talk a little bit. Get out. I know, right? (sighs) No way. Yeah, no, I... I, I I literally took classes in college on documentary filmmaking. So, so yeah. If my college, well, I mean, I'm so old and I went to a small college. If they'd had any kind of film, I probably would have taken those classes, but they didn't. Mm-hmm. I took sociology and I was very excellent at judging other people. <laughs> and you still are. Ah. ah. 
So yeah, so uh, we're going to talk about some documentaries today. And uh, it's a super broad category. So this is by no means going to be thorough at all. I just, yeah, you can't, there, you can't be comprehensive. Like that would be yeah, ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, we we'd have to narrow our focus, and <laughs> we we don't think that far ahead. So yeah, <laughs> it's true. It's, it's funny because it's true. It's true. Yeah. Uh, sometime in the future, uh, one of the thing, one of the episodes I really want to do is an episode just on Errol Morris, and uh, that yeah, we'll we'll put it together someday. But you know, for right now, we're just going to do documentaries that melissa likes not all of them but you know like i like all the ones i'm going to mention but you know these are definitely not all of the documentaries i like because there are many documentaries i like and more than i can mention in a single episode yeah like no we want to keep this we want to keep it to a small sampling Mm -hmm. that is easily digested by our poor listeners we don't want to cram it down their gullets right (laughs) they don't they don't need some sort of cinephile like indigestion no yeah if we if we mention too many of them you know we can't talk about any of them so we're trying to find a happy medium here happy very happy and medium very medium what all right what are you going to start us off with i think i will start out with you know what let's warm up with something i know you have seen uh we're going to start out with man versus snake Oh, yeah. (laughs) Actually, um, my list is actually kind of paired up where um, I kind of have groups of films. So I have both King of Kong Kong and Man vs. Snake. So King of Kong being a documentary about uh, a gentleman who wants to become the world champion of Donkey Kong to get through all of the screens of Donkey Kong. And Man vs. Snake, which is a man who wants to be the world champion of Nibbler, (laughs) if you remember Nibbler. So, dear listeners, if you actually did go through all of our Fantastic Fest episodes, you've heard us talk about Man vs. Snake because it was there this year. So, yeah, it's it's an interesting pairing of these two movies because they're both about men with uh, very similar goals. They have different ways of telling their story. They have different tone. So Man vs. Snake is very much into the joy of seeking this goal and kind of the silliness of Nibbler and a little bit of the absurdity. But it's totally down with people who have goals like this. You know, it, it's not making fun of the subject. No, it's, it's not... self-aware. It's a self-aware in a way that um, King of Kong isn't. Yeah, it's self-aware. King of Kong is an epic story of man's struggle but nibbler is very aware this is a kind of a ridiculous game and yet i want to be the best at it okay well that's okay then Mm -hmm. and it's interesting because between the two you see some of the same people (laughs) yes billy 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 who's kind of an asshole (laughs) oh that hair like oh that hair just rings asshole like it just like he might be a nice guy but by having that hair you just are like you're a, you're an asshole. Like if you didn't want to be an asshole, you wouldn't wear that hair. Well, also, he kind I of is an asshole if I remember correctly from King of Kong. In King of Kong, he is, but he's much more relatable in uh, Man versus Snake. Right. I feel like he's also had a little bit of work done. It's possible. <laughs> like he looks a little tight and plasticky, right? Ah, and he's like- vain enough. He's vain enough. He would. Uh, that's true. Although it might just be his demeanor. He might just be kind of plastic. 
Yeah, I feel like he is also just a little plastic. Yes. We're, we're being judgy, by the way. Because oh, he's worth judging. <laughs> I mean, that man is larger than life and begging to be noticed. Therefore, he's begging to be judged. So say I. <laughs> so yeah, dear listeners, uh, King of Kong Fistful of Quarters is fairly easy to come across these days. So uh, if you haven't seen it, I recommend it. It is a very good documentary. It tells its story well. You get very involved in the in the saga of this man battling his way to the end, to the final screen of Donkey Kong. And it does a very good job of detailing the difficulties of such a task and all the, all the things that go into it. And it's a very, it's a, just a very interesting movie. It's, it's very detailed in the way it tells its story and man versus snake um, has a lot of the same things going for it, but it also has this sense of humor that's, that drives underneath it that I think um, does very well for it. Yeah. There's a, there's a, part in in the man versus snake where there's a whole like montage of what the fuck is that because it's, it's a very small game that not very many people remember mm-hmm. donkey kong we all know like everybody knows donkey kong yeah what the fuck is nibbler <laughs> what the fuck is nibbler yeah. indeed so if you're into the idea of watching a couple of documentaries about people who like to play video games but even more broadly about people who want to rise to a challenge. It, they're both really satisfying. Mm-hmm. Another pair of films I have. These both have to do with movies, though in very different ways. First of all, I will bring up Hodorowsky's Dune. Oh, I still haven't seen it. Oh, it's so oh, good. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. Oh, Put it on the list. Put it on the list. It, Put it on okay, the list. Okay, we'll do. We'll do. Okay. Future so- Melissa. Put it on the list. Hodorowsky's Dune. Okay, so... Uh, dear listeners, if you are not if you are not familiar with Alejandro Jodorowsky, he is a Chilean filmmaker. Say it again. Say it again. Jodorowsky. He is a Chilean filmmaker uh, who started started his career in the seventies, and he he made a bizarro art house <laughs> B movie western called El Topo, and he made um, a bizarro. <laughs> meta movie about a religious quest called holy mountain and he made a totally bizarro horror movie called santa sangre in the 80s um he makes about a movie a decade and they're very arty they seem spiritual on the surface but you get the sense that he just kind of likes the symbolism of it all and he just takes symbolism from every type of spirituality you can find and just throws it at the screen just to see what sticks and to see what sort of juxtapositions he seems to get accidentally. Very interesting filmmaker. And boy, there's nothing like the movies he makes. So back in the 70s, he wanted to make Dune, as in Frank Herbert's Dune, the spice, that Dune. (laughs) So this guy... (laughs) The spice must flow. Shai Hulud! Shai Hulud! So this guy decides he wants to make Dune and he develops it for years in the 70s. So this is pre-David Lynch Dune. So he, so Hodorowsky gets all the artists he can grab. He gets H.R. Giger and he gets, uh, you know, Dan O'Bannon who 
who made the alien movie eventually made alien and he got um all of these great visual artists and all these writers and he got I, if I remember, he got like Mick Jagger on board and he was talking to Orson <laughs> Wells and just a, anybody. And he was like, I, I told them to come with me on a spiritual journey. <laughs> and, and like at some point late in the film, somebody asks him, so did you ever actually read Dune? He goes, no, no, I never read the book. <laughs> Are you shitting me? I'm not me? kidding. I'm not kidding. But the thing is. You never told me that. Oh, no. And the th- the thing is, it's like a theme through the movie. Various other people they ask, "So did you ever read the book?" No, I never read the book. <laughs> but anyway, wait, wait. this movie was. So where did they come up with the script? <laughs> Who wrote the script? <laughs> wait, what the? Oh, you've got oh to see God. this. You got to see this to believe it. But anyway, so this movie was in pre-production for like two or three years with some of the greatest production artists on earth working on it. So they had amassed this huge amount of artwork and pre-work on this movie, and it never went anywhere. You know, eventually the the project was shut down. Dino, Dino De Laurentiis took it and gave it to David Lynch, and that's how the Lynch Dune movie happened in the early 80s. But they were left sitting with just like acres of artwork that was produced for what would have been the most insane sci-fi movie ever made. I mean, really insane. You have to see the movie to get just the scope of this. And it never saw the light of day. All of this artwork. There was this huge compilation, like three books that put it all together, like just giant tomes. And they basically just got hidden so this movie is the first time that anybody's really looked at this stuff or gotten a chance to see it all of this pre-production and what has happened in years after it all these artists went to work on other movies and they go well this previous idea i had never went anywhere i will just use it in this next movie and so oh fuck yeah you always rip yourself off oh yeah so Alien came from this project and Flash Gordon came from this project and just all of these different, all of these different future projects just picked all of this stuff up. So, so this, this documentary is just this joyous investigation of this bizarre project that never went anywhere that you just, you just listen to, you go, that that would have been just a disaster, but I want to see it. <laughs> but but a beautiful disaster. It would have been an amazing disaster. Like the definition of hot mess. Oh, yeah. Oh, you can't look away. You And it's glorious. Like, and it's glorious in just how unapologetically bullshit it is. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So look up Hodorowski's Dune. It's it's fantastic. It's a great documentary. It's fun and inspiring. It's really inspiring because, you know, Hodorowski's still alive and he's, you know, sitting in his Paris apartment talking to these this film crew. And he's he's a crazy man, but by God, you would follow him to the ends of the earth because he is just impassioned. And you you listen to him for five minutes and you go, Yeah, you got it. You're insane, but you got it, man. <laughs> <laughs> if you started a religion, you'd have the craziest religion, and I would sign up for it just to see what happened. All right, what yeah. pairs with Hodorowski's Dune, Melissa? Okay, this is this is much darker pairing. 
it, but it is about love of movies. Active Killing. Oh my God, you went there. I did. I did. So Active Killing. This is a very important film. I feel it's um, it's on my queue. But it, ha- oh. you having told me about it means that I'm like, I really, really, really want to watch it. But often my moving movie watching tends to happen at midnight after everybody else has gone to bed. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not really up for that at midnight by myself. It's a, it's a dark movie. It is a seriously dark movie. But fascinating. What you've told me about it is fascinating. Yeah. So it's, give me a second. It's on Netflix. Yes. Dear listeners, it is on Netflix. You can put it on your queue right now. And it's been on Netflix for quite a while, which both means it's easily accessible, but also it might go away anytime. So get on that. Well, no, actually, it'll probably stay out there because Drafthouse Films is the distributor. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, they picked it up. They picked it up. So that's right. It's a documentary where um, a filmmaker named uh, Joshua Oppenheimer went to Indonesia and he found several of the men who were leading death squads in Indonesia several decades ago. So there was a full scale genocide in Indonesia and the death squad people were and still are regarded as heroes. So he finds these older men and the filmmaker then basically gives them the materials for them to remake their favorite scenes from their favorite movies in whatever way they want. And so these men, of course, want to remake, you know, I'm, I'm forgetting some of the specifics, but like scenes from Scarface or, you know, these, these violent films, you know, with these anti-heroes and, you know, these people that they look up to and they, they, they look up to American movies and they kind of love that glorification of violence. So these, these men with these really dark pasts who are regarded as heroes for what they did and have never really looked back on what they did with any sort of perspective are making these movie scenes, but slowly as they're making these scenes happen in front of the actual movie camera and we're watching it, a couple of them are starting to see and starting to understand what they did. They're starting to have empathy for the people on the other side of the equation because naturally, you know, somebody has to play the victim in the scene and they're realizing, well, how does that make me feel? And there's one scene where they wind up confronting somebody who actually was on the other side of the genocide. And he, you know, he was, he, he literally confronts them about the people around him who were killed and it is fascinating and it is hard to watch. It is uncomfortable, but it is, it's an amazing film because this is the movie that started a dialogue in Indonesia about what actually happened. Like once this movie was made and that seed was planted in the heads of the the people who took part in the project that maybe I shouldn't be a hero for this. Mm. It's starting a societal change. I love that Draft House Films both wants to make sure that Breen is seen by the world, but also <laughs> is like, this movie is important and people need to know about it. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah. It's, God bless you, Tim it's, Lee. It's an amazing, it's an amazing and hard to watch movie. See, like, like, that's why I can't watch it at midnight by myself. Oh, I know. I know. All right. What so, else you got? What else you got? So I've got a trio. 
These are artist, oh. these are artist films. These are artist films. Okay. First of all, I will start with Marwan Call, which I believe is on Netflix right now. It's usually fairly easy to find on streaming, if I remember right. But it's called Marwan Call. And it is a documentary that plays it fairly close to its chest. There is a lot of story there, and it only deals out these cards very slowly. But it tells a story about a gentleman who... It's, it's very clear he is not a normal adult. He has some sort of brain issue. And the only way he can deal with the world is by making his own narratives and he, and he, with this model town that he has built in his backyard. So this, this tiny city with little churches and, and houses. And, and he has these dolls that he dress, that he you know, meticulously dresses up and, you know, models the hair and everything. Like they look like people he knows or, you know, people around him or he creates characters and he creates these elaborate narratives in this miniature town. And eventually somebody gave him a camera and he photographs them and is, he's a well-known artist. You know, this is, this is his uh, story. And he's a well-known photographer because he gets these just gorgeous photos with all of these, models and he the the photos look like documentary photography from like Vietnam or uh-huh. something like that but they're very clearly dolls um they're beautiful beautiful photography but as the documentary goes on you find out more and more about his life like how did he get that brain injury and oh. why did he get the brain injury and oh. this is why the the narratives happen this way and it's it's fascinating it's a happy movie actually but it's okay. because it's it's a man who has learned how to fix he, he he has been through a lot of shit and this is how he came out on the other side and when you're watching the documentary you're already seeing him on the other side essentially so it's okay. it's it's very beautiful. It 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 does get you know a little dark in the middle as you learn his story, his background. But man, it's it's a fascinating movie, and it's it's very beautiful in its own way. Okay, yeah. all right, yeah. And Wait, what is, it, what is it called? Spell it. I want to put that on my Marwin notes. Call M A R W E N C O L, and that is okay. the name of the town, if I remember right. That's the name of his invented little town. There's another one, another artist movie I wanted to uh, mention. It's called Cutie and the Boxer. (laughs) Okay. It came out about two years ago or so. It's a documentary about these two artists. They've been married to each other for 40 years. They currently live in New York. And they, um, let's see, uh, Ushio Shinohara and Noriko Shinohara. You know, they're Japanese native Japanese, but they came to New York in the seventies, I think it was. And he is this well-regarded modern artist, kind of halfway in between performance artist and painter. And he does, he does things like he, he puts on boxing gloves and he dips them in paint and then he punches the canvas and it splatters all over the place. Uh, (laughs) Stuff like that. Stuff like that. And she does cartooning. Oh. And he always had the big fame. He has been this hot shot on uh, in the modern art scene for decades. And she has always kind of been in his shadow. And this documentary, you can tell that the documentary the the people making the documentary basically walked into the apartment and decided to make a 
documentary about their lives, not really realizing what it would reveal. And it, Uh it's so much of it is you start to see her come out of her shell and start to come into her own as an artist, as they're filming. Oh, it's very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting watching their dynamic and, um, it's beautifully filmed. It is just gorgeous to look at. It, it opens with a scene of the guy doing the, the boxing glove thing with this giant, like 20 foot long canvas. And it's all in slow motion and it's just beautifully shot. If anything, just watch it for the cinematography. It's a, it's a gorgeous documentary. But it's fun to watch their interaction and um, how the film crew captured it. And I've got a third film in this trio of artist films. Okay. Exit Through the Gift Shop. Oh, of course. Banksy. Yeah. yeah. Have you seen it? Not yet. It's on my queue. I know, I know. Okay. No. Oh, oh my God. This is so great. This is so great. So Exit Through the Gift Shop is made by a man who basically as a hobby got a video camera as a gift and decided to start filming uh, graffiti artists that he knew and start making his own documentary about graffiti artists. And he was just taking tons and tons and tons of footage of, you know, people like Shepard Ferry who did the, you know, obey thing with the, the um, Andre the giant head and, and all of these famous graffiti artists. And eventually he, the filmmaker decides he wants to go after Banksy. He wants to find Banksy. He wants to talk to Banksy. And so it's this kind of obsession. So he tries to track down Banksy who is famously completely anonymous. Nobody knows who Banksy is. Well, in a strange turn of events, he finds Banksy. What? He finds Banksy. Now, here's the thing. As he's interviewing Banksy and learning a bit about Banksy's, uh, how he does his work, (laughs) Banksy figures out this guy is full of shit. The filmmaker is full of shit. The, The man has been filming for years and the footage has gone nowhere. And it's very clear he doesn't know jack shit about making a film. And Banksy takes the camera from him and the footage and he turns the camera around and he starts and Banksy starts making a documentary about the guy who was making a movie about him and it gets weirder from there it's amazing (laughs) it is truly amazing whether the whole thing was orchestrated by Banksy or whether this is completely genuine I have no idea because it's fucking Banksy but oh it it's fascinating, and um, it really does reveal a lot about not just Banksy, but um, like they talk to Shepard Fairey, and they they talk to a bunch of other great graffiti artists, and it's interesting finding out all that history that is kind of this verbal history that most people don't know about. Yeah, yeah, it it is a fantastic little film. Do you have some? Uh... Musician? I don't have any musician ones right now. But, I mean, we can always come back later and do another episode with more documentaries and do some musician ones. Did you want to bring up some musician ones? There's a double feature that is pretty obvious. Everybody knows about 20 Feet from Stardom. It Mm -hmm. just won the documentary Oscar last year, the year before. I think it was the year before. But um, 20 Feet from Stardom, which is a documentary about the backup singers for the stars, as well as also just sort of a look into the music industry of how they manufactured these groups by using talented vocals for the radio 
and then just sending completely different people out on tour mm -hmm. and, and how that really screwed over a lot of artists. So there's 20 feet from stardom, which is a terrific documentary. It really is fantastic. And it really is a meditation on, on artistry versus fame. Yeah. Like, yeah. what is it that you really want? But then the tag team double feature is the wrecking crew, which is also fascinating <laughs> and pairs beautifully with it because the wrecking crew were the studio musicians who played all of the hits from the sixties, mm -hmm. all of them. 60s and early 70s, the, if you heard a hit on the radio, they were probably the musicians playing it. And probably even adding touches that like you would think, oh, somebody else wrote that music. No, that was them just going, oh, wait, that sounds like shit. Why don't I do this instead? And the, and the people are like, yeah, do that. That sounds better. So this set of studio musicians, and they, they're amazing. And they played on everything. And between that and 20 feet from stardom, you will realize that all of the classic hits that you know, are not by the people that you know them. They're not by the people who made those songs. Mm -hmm. They're by these other people. Like you can't trust anything you know about music from that era. And what's really terrific is one of the best known bass players of that era was a woman. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And she's amazing. <laughs> so yeah, I highly recommend those two. And I feel like they're both on Netflix right now. I know the Wrecking Crew is, I think 20 Feet from Stardom still is too. I've got mm. a third, I've got a third one to pair with that band called Death. Band, what? Band called Death is amazing. So third music one for you guys. Okay. So um, back in the seventies, um, there was this band that formed in, I want to say it was Detroit, all black. They wanted to be a metal band. Since when did you see a black metal band? You still don't see black metal bands. No, you don't. Like, when you think about it, a lot of pop music is very white. Uh-huh. And uh, and I'm sorry, rock and metal is still pop music. I'm sorry. It oh, is. it absolutely is. But but so this, this black band forms and they want to do metal. And uh, they get far enough into a recording contract that they lay down one album and then it pretty much just vanishes and um the the band eventually falls apart um the 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 interrelational story of the band is fascinating but i i couldn't tell it to you right now just because my memory is crap for that sort of thing but it's like they're they were all brothers um you know one brother was the visionary and of course you know he his his vision kind of overreached what he could actually do and and that sort of thing and so there's the, the interpersonal stuff is fascinating to learn about and it's, it pulls at the heartstrings, but there's been a rediscovery of their music and these guys were good. Oh, their that music fantastic. is amazing. And so there's been this rediscovery of the one album that they had, <laughs> you know, like 40 years after they made it. And uh, so that's what this documentary is about, is about this band and the rediscovery of their music. Now, I've got another pairing. These are both race car movies. They're both about F1. Aha! <laughs> so one of them is called One, the just the number one, which makes it real fun to Google. Uh, but it is, a, <laughs> it is a documentary about F1 racing. And more yeah. specifically... It's about the formation of F1 racing, but also the the big push in the 60s and 70s 
for safety <laughs> because uh, it, you know, the, the cars got so, so muscular, so fast and the, the drivers were so, so to speak, driven to go faster and faster that safety was oh, left by the wayside. For you a really said long that. Time. I, I couldn't think of any better way to say it, but you were losing people very fast off of the racing circuit in those days. People were dying all the time. And so the, the documentary is largely about the push towards safer cars. And Oh, okay. Yeah. And, and it's very interesting, especially um, listening to the stories of the drivers and weighing their ambition versus weighing wanting to be alive. <laughs> Like, and, I want to be really successful, but I'd like to be alive to enjoy it. Right. Um, the other documentary, which pairs really nicely with this one, is called Senna. It is about a Brazilian Formula One driver, Ayrton Senna, who was one of those drivers during that period. He was kind of a hero of Brazil because he won like three championships in a row and then died a fiery, horrible death. He was. I shouldn't laugh at that. You shouldn't. You shouldn't your face was great. It's. Yeah, but it's absolutely great. true. But so it's. But you know, as he, he was one of the people pushing for more safety, and he was refusing to drive on days that were rainy and things like that. And unfortunately, you know, he was one of the people who eventually, you know, didn't make it. So oh. the documentary one is a uh, a broader documentary, and Senna just focuses on this one guy. But they're they're telling the same story from two different perspectives. Very interesting to watch. Together. I feel like I feel like we're getting a similar moment right now with football, where they're they're confronting how damaging football is finally, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. trying and trying to figure out like is it even remotely responsible to have so much money riding on killing people. Right. Because, I mean, you are. Yeah. You're, you're damaging them for the rest of their life. And by the way, there are a lot of sports that are like that. Yeah. Talk to me about competitive gymnastics. That shit is fucked up. Oh, that anyway, will ruin but you. you. Oh, God, yeah. Okay, so I've got a trio of movies that are capturing life as it happens. You know, which you kind of do with a documentary anyway, but they're kind of, these are kind of special. Uh, yeah. For, first of all, The Square which is a very recent release. It is a documentary that basically takes all the video footage they could find that was shot on ground during the um, Egyptian Revolution. So all of these uh, these factions, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So all of these factions that were leading the the revolt in Egypt uh, basically were documenting their own lives on cell phones and video cameras and what have you. And the filmmakers basically just pulled them all together, which must have been just an enormous amount of footage, and somehow oh God, sifted yeah. through it and tied it all together into like a mostly comprehensive view, kind of a kaleidoscopic view of the revolution, how it went right and how it went wrong and, and why it didn't quite work the first time. And and it's it's also notable for being kind of a living documentary because when I saw it, after I saw it, they were still adding footage to it because the story was still oh, happening. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. That's Very sort of fascinating. And I think that one is easily available online because that is part of 
that is part of the story is these young people in Egypt using social media and using video and staying connected and using that to gather and to well social make social media heard. can be a real force for change mm-hmm. i mean the black lives matter is only happening because people are finally using video and posting it online to where it can be seen to where we can all as a as a nation start seeing what's happening it's important mm-hmm. it's an important thing that's happening finally so anyway yeah yeah awesome ah. what else you got Okay, this one's dark. This one's dark. You know, it's also it's also good. But I, it's, I, oh, oh man, it's hard. Okay, it's called Dear Zachary. Oh, oh. have I've you heard, heard about, about this? this one? Oh, oh man. I feel like I have heard about. Okay, this Okay, so this is a movie. The situation is um, the, the the filmmaker is is an amateur filmmaker. He's he's just like a friend of this family. So, he, um, I think it's his brother. His brother passed away and his brother's ex his his brother's girlfriend announced that she was pregnant with the brother's kid so these two were a couple brother passes away girlfriend says she's pregnant so the guy making the movie starts making this movie this documentary to tell the son what his father was like since the son would never be able to meet the father so this this uncle um, you know, starts making this very poignant uh, documentary about what the dad was like and how he passed away. And there were some things about the, the girlfriends who's going to have the baby. There's some weird things about how the brother had passed away. And as the uncle keeps digging into the information, he starts realizing this is getting weird. Oh, and yeah. the woman has the baby... And that's in the documentary, too. I mean, literally, all this stuff is happening as the man is making the film. And he he starts out with one very definite idea of what this film is about. And it transforms over the course of this movie. And and it is a hard arc to watch because the child is born, the child is happy and healthy, and the child passes away, too. Oh, my God. And he thinks it's because of the ex-girlfriend. It becomes clear that the ex-girlfriend is the instigator Disturbed. of these deaths. Yes. So the, oh. I, I hate saying spoiler because, oh, but, oh, oh, oh. But anyway, this documentary winds up being an investigation of something horrible that happened. It starts out with this very sweet intent and ends up seeking <sighs> justice. Yeah. Oh, it's ending up on a lot of... Oh, it just rips you to pieces. But it's so interesting. It's on a lot of lists right now. And by the way, it's also on Netflix. I just checked. Yeah. Yep. It's there. It's easy to get at. On a lighter note, this is a a project that I have adored for a very long time. It's the 7-Up series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the 7-Up series, uh, for those of us Americans who don't know what it is, uh, this is a British project that started in the 1960s where the BBC took 14 seven-year-old kids from different walks of life. And they made this 30-minute documentary about where the, these kids going, you know, how they get treated differently because of their class, um, what are their views, what do they think their future is going to hold, that sort of thing. Kind of a, you know, a soft sell piece, but it's uh, 
features these seven-year-old kids going, I don't think I'm going to get married, you know, that sort of thing. Girls are gross. And my and- daughter, Teddy, right now is seven years old. And I can tell you that her viewpoint on what the world and what life is, is uniquely entertaining. <laughs> I would venture that the it is world for is many seven-year-olds. Yeah, the yeah. world is made up of uniquely magical and logical, incredibly concrete logical things. Those lo- the logic is sound. It doesn't go to the right place, but it is sound logic. <laughs> it is very enjoyable to listen to. So yeah, oh my goodness, yeah. I think Teddy right now, Teddy could stay seven years old for three years and I would be very happy. I'm just really enjoying this time right now. (laughs) So after this documentary happens, seven years later, director Michael Apted picks it up and finds all the kids again and talks to them at age 14. What their hopes are, what did they think of themselves when they were seven, what what are they doing right now, how their lives differ because the, their class is different or where they're you know, where they live is different. And then they follow up seven years later at age 21 and seven years later at 28 and seven years later and seven years later, they just did 56 up. So everybody is 56 years old. It's so fascinating. Yeah. And you get so involved watching the lives of these people. I mean, this is, this is reality TV at its best. It is, um, and if you're at a really slow time, time, time lapse, time lapse, Mm -hmm. I am so sorry. I have not been sleeping well for months now and it's got, it's starting to affect me. (laughs) All right. Anyway. It's actually a major TV event in Britain whenever another one of these comes out because, you know, you have to wait seven years to find out what happens to these people. And it's been interesting watching them in their adulthood because they are weirdly famous for being part of this documentary series. And some of them take to it and some of them don't. You know, a couple of them have completely opted out of the project. Um, Some people show up like for 28 up and then they're gone for a couple of iterations and they pop up again, like 21 years later. And it is fascinating. And it's interesting to see where everybody wound up, you know, depending on, you know, what schools they went to, what opportunities they had or didn't have. And there's one character and he he just, he just breaks your heart. Um, One character, he's a real human being, but uh, Neil, the man named Neil, in in the first documentary in Seven Up, he is this charming little kid. He is he's bright and happy and smiling, and throughout his life, you can see this steady descent into mental illness. Oh, and and you can tell he he's one of those people who's just brilliant, but he oh. he 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 doesn't do well with society. He doesn't mesh well. And, and he is completely aware of it. You can tell he's just kind of locked into, he kind of looks upon himself in horror. And it's just, it's hard to watch him. But, you know, the good, the good news is in the later documentaries, he starts getting it back together again. He, he's a politician now. Like he, he got it together. He's a local politician now. He's, he's kind of found his purpose in life and is kind of starting to get it together. And he gets so involved in it. And, um, you know, so many of the other people have had similar arcs that you get to follow throughout. And you're literally watching these people throughout their entire lives. 
and, and catching up with them every seven years. You, you and see, you know them. You see husbands come and go. You see children appear. You and yeah, it's fascinating. Just fascinating. Um, one of them wound up teaching physics at the University of Wisconsin. So he was like in Wisconsin for a while. And, you know, one of them wound up in Australia. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's brilliant. Yeah. It's fascinating. That's brilliant. It is a huge investment to watch all of these. <laughs> but because each well, one, yeah, it, the first one's a half an hour long and the rest of them are two hours plus. Well, so that's seven fourteen. That's like fourteen and a half hours. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because if they're at fifty-six, that's that's eight times seven, so eight. The first one was a half hour. Yeah, I did mm-hmm. my math right. Yeah. I can math with the best of them. <laughs> uh, the the good news is, if you much. just watch fifty-six up, or you know, one of the later ones, they do bring in footage from the previous iterations and kind of tie them all together. So it's like, here's this person well, we're yeah, going to talk like- to. And they just flash through 7 up, 21 up, 7 up, 14 up, 21 up, 28 up. It's like previously on the West Wing, you're going to have to really seriously show some stuff to get people caught up. Holy cow. Literally one of them. I think it's 28 up. They literally, the first half hour is the entirety of 7 up. Like they just, they just tacked all of 7 up at the front of 28 up. Well, it's a video longevity study. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like there are probably scholars who watch these and are putting together research about class or hell, who knows what about migratory patterns? Who knows? But are watching these and are able to glean data that is useful because it is such a such a longevity study that they are able to get unique data. Mm-hmm. It's just it's just fascinating shit. It's just fascinating shit, man. Good stuff. Great stuff. Yes. Great stuff. I approve. I approve. Melissa, bravo to you. I give <laughs> Thank you. you. Thank you. All right. I've got another pairing. Got another pairing. Okay. Errol Morris and Werner Herzog are besties, you know, kind of. Really? <laughs> they kind of are. You wouldn't think oh. it. No, what, what happened is when Errol Morris was a young, young hooligan uh, before he started making movies in earnest, he started making a movie called Gates of Heaven. Yeah. And Werner okay. Herzog, who was a well-established filmmaker by then, said, if you finish that movie, I will eat my shoe. <laughs> and I only say it that way because I can't do a proper Werner Herzog accent to save my life. I wish I could because that would be so useful. Is, is he German? Yes, he is very German. He is very German. If you finish your movie. No, there's a very particular way that Werner Herzog talks. It's not just a German accent. If you switch on television, it's just uh, ridiculous and it's destructive. It kills us. And talk shows will, will kill us. They kill our language. So we have to declare holy war against uh, what we see every single day on television. So he goes to Errol Morris and he says, if you finish this movie, I will eat my shoe. Errol Morris finishes the movie and Werner Herzog, true to his word, ate his shoe in a public exhibit. And there was a documentary about did. it. So, so Gate, my pairing is, uh, first of all, Gates of Heaven, which is an amazing movie, um, which I'll get back to in a moment. Uh, and uh, Werner Herzog eats his shoe, <laughs> which is a documentary made by Les Blanc. So Les Blanc, who was a friend of both of these filmmakers as well, 
a fantastic documentarian, documentarian, I should say. He, he made this lovely little documentary. I don't know. It's maybe 10, 15 minutes long where he, he follows Werner Herzog cooking his shoe in a big pot with, you know, like onions and stuff, you know, softening up the leather and he takes it out on stage on flavor. He takes it out on, on stage on a plate in front of an audience, any, you know, knife and fork and everything, eats a shoe. <laughs> oh, my God. So Gates of Heaven, the, the movie that resulted from this, is, is a fascinating movie. Oh, my God. So this is a movie about pet cemeteries. And it's not dark at all. It is not a dark movie. It is um, what Errol Morris exceeds at is he gets people to talk in the most candid way and he can reveal just layers of meaning in just a single unbroken interview it's magic that that's what he does best in all of his documentaries are people talking at the camera and it is fucking magic and so gates of heaven is all these people who are who either run pet cemeteries or have had pets die or just, you know, random people who happen to be around that Errol Morris felt like talking to, it all ties together somehow. But it's they're people talking about the love of their pets, people talking about pet cemeteries and the kind of kind of revealing both the artifice of it and the real sort of service it provides and there's kind of this inherent goofiness for how much people love their pets and yet there's something very genuine about it and there's kind of this revealing kind of verbal history of how people think about death and it's it is simultaneously kind of silly and very very deep and every time i watch the movie i see something new it's amazing it is amazing I'm just enjoying how excited you are. It, it is so is. good. So good. <laughs> we'll eventually do an Errol Morris episode, but I I love his filmmaking. By uh, the way, be- listeners, there are eight Werner Herzog films on Netflix right now. I just had Errol Morris up, but I don't remember how many were up there. I think it was like three or four. But Werner Herzog, there are eight of his films on Netflix at this moment. Werner Herzog is actually a very prolific filmmaker, and he makes both documentaries and fiction films. So he's had quite a career, and he keeps making stuff. The Cave of Forgotten Dreams looks beautiful. That's the one about the cave paintings. Yes, it's about the cave paintings. And Werner Herzog filmed that one in 3D. Ooh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I really wish I'd seen it in 3D. There's one called White Diamond, where he follows basically an air balloon into the Amazon rainforest and, you know, finds, you know, the native tribes there and the, the, you know, explore caves and waterfalls and all that stuff. It's gorgeous. Um, There's a documentary he did about... um, It's called Dr. Death, The Rise and Fall of Fred Leuchter, which is about a man who designs electric chairs. His documentary is amazing. His his fiction films are downright bizarre. You know, see uh, Bad Lieutenant Port of Call, New Orleans, in which Nicolas Cage is in prime Nicolas Cage-ness, but... Anyway, I am getting way off. Well, that's the way you, that's where you want Nicolas Cage. Oh, God. There is a scene with Val Kilmer and an iguana that I cannot describe. Anyway. What other films do you have, Melissa? I've got, I've got more films. I've got more films. I'm on my last pair. 
Okay, I have okay. to ask, is one of those last ones Man on Wire? I considered it, but I'm saving that for later, for, for another episode. I did a uh, uh, real education episode about Man on Wire. We can link that in the show notes. <laughs> also, if you're feeling like you want some documentary that's going to go on for a while, Ken Burns, you cannot go wrong with Ken Burns' Civil War. Also on Netflix. Ken yeah. Burns' Prohibition is amazing. Oh, I need to see that. So good. It's so good. Is it on Netflix? Yes, it is. Really? Okay. Yeah, Yeah. Ken Burns Prohibition. It's not very long either, so you can cook through that one pretty quickly. Like, listeners, I have learned to just keep Netflix up and just keep adding to my queue while I'm recording these things (laughs) because it makes my life better. It makes my life so much better. There it is. Ken Burns Prohibition. Right there. I'm adding it right now. You go ahead, Melissa. Okay. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end on the artsy films. There are two artsy films that I'm pairing together because I love them both. Um, the first one is Man with a Movie Camera. This is a Ooh. Russian film. It's from the silent era. And it is, it is a Russian filmmaker who basically just went out with a camera who, and he just wanted to make this kind of kaleidoscopic view of life in cosmopolitan Russia. So he's running around Moscow with this movie camera and he's, he's shooting things like traffic intersections and buildings and people doing their work and, and trains and stuff. There's, there is zero plot and most of the images are matched just through the sensibility of image making. So, um, it's, it's more of a, it's like a moving painting more than anything else. Don't expect a plot from it. It's, it, it does kind of make its, its own sense because you kind of start in the morning and then you come to afternoon and you get to nighttime. And so time progresses throughout the day, but this filmmaker is just adding things together more like a music video. So things kind of make their own sense as they're juxtaposed uh, against each other in different shots. But he's very inventive with the shots. He's doing things like uh, scraping the backings off mirrors and making his own like matte shots. And he's doing split screen. This is like 1924. <laughs> Holy shit. Yeah. Yeah. This yeah. is so in your wheelhouse. Oh my God. Oh yeah. And the thing is, um, if you can find the copy of Man with a Movie Camera with a score by the Alloy Orchestra, it's amazing. Um, many, many other bands and, and musicians have done a score for this movie because it's essentially like a, a music video waiting to happen. It's very rhythmical. It's, it's, it's kind of, it, it's fun to watch the imagery go by. And um, if, if you get a chance to see it with, with live music or you find a copy of the DVD with Alloy Orchestra music, it's great stuff. It's so great. <laughs> the other movie that I'm pairing with this is Baraka. It is a movie that came out in, I believe it was the 1990s. But this film crew took a 70 millimeter camera went to 24 countries and just filmed beautiful things. And it's, ah. it's, it's kind of all, it's going around the world and just filming human experience. There's no, there's no dialogue. There's no voiceover. There's no explanation to what anything is. You don't know where you are, <laughs> but all of these images from different countries are following one another and you so you see tribes in the Amazon, you see life in Tokyo, you see 
New York City, you see, um, you know, temples in India and just beautiful, gorgeous 70 millimeter photography. And it's kind of hypnotic. You just kind of watch it. And if you aren't already stoned, you will get there. (laughs) 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 There, And and you kind of wish you knew more concrete things about the things you're seeing, because near the end, there's a shot of this, this temple. I wish I knew where it was because they they pull through this this temple and it's all mosaic tiles that are mirrored or gemstones or something and it's it's just like a hallway of glitter. <laughs> it's gorgeous. Oh God, I want to go there. I know, right? Hallway of glitter? Oh, yeah. It it's it looks to be somewhere in the Middle East. I'm not entirely sure, but it's it's beautiful. Oh. Yeah, it's it's just a feast for the eyes. So if you if you need something calming, if you need to just kind of zen out for a while, Baraka or it's, is wonderful. If you happen to have a little pot laying around and you just want something on the TV while you do that, there you go. Or perhaps LSD. I've never done that, so I wouldn't know. No judgment. <laughs> no judgment. I just haven't been successful yet. What? Oh, I said that out loud. So I looked up a list of like famous documentaries and I just recently went, I just looked up which ones of them are on Netflix. So here listeners is a quick rundown of things also on Netflix that you could look up. Chariots of the Gods. Is oh my God. That, oh my God. That is such, oh God. <laughs> it is an Oscar nominated documentary that is Full of bullshit. It is so That's full of bullshit. Me. It is loads of bullshit. This is the documentary about aliens coming down and building the pyramids. But Jesus. it was nominated for an Oscar oh. in 1970. So that's on Netflix right now. I feel like all of us need to watch that, right? Oh, boy. Also on Netflix is Ballet 422. This, of course, is something that's going to appeal to me because it is a documentary about the building of a ballet at a ballet company. And it I haven't watched it yet, but apparently it is very much different from the usual style of talking heads and title cards. It is just an exploration of the creative process. Mm-hmm. Also, the thin blue line, speaking so of Errol Morris, Errol Morris is that is as perhaps his most brilliant movie. It is considered one of the best documentaries ever made. It's so true. perhaps you should put that on your queue. It, it's also, about a, we'll we'll definitely talk about it when we eventually get to the Errol Morris episode. But it's this is a documentary that basically got a guy out of prison because yeah. it was able to investigate the crime that he was. Uh, yeah, he was convicted it's, of and brought enough question upon it. Man on Wire is also on Netflix mm-hmm. currently. Also. Hoop Dreams is on Netflix. Hoop Dreams is amazing, guys. You got to watch it. There you go, Melissa. It's on Netflix right now. Yes. Everybody, everybody watch Hoop Dreams. Everybody watch Hoop Dreams. What, what, what? I feel like it needs to be a song. All right. Melissa, what do you want to say about documentaries? Oh, there's so much to say about documentaries. I mean, I mean, we di- we didn't even scratch the surface with this episode. We didn't even talk about the Journey documentary where they found a new lead singer, which I stayed up until three in the morning watching, and it made me happy, and like re reinvigorated the next week of my life. But we've already right? talked was- about that documentary, though. <laughs> I mean, yeah, but the point is, one of our previous episodes. That is what documentaries do because they are real. 
they have the capacity to touch you in a way similar but different from story. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Right? Because they are real, they make you realize the potential but also the horror of what it is to be human. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, that was so brilliant. I'm so great. <laughs> I should drink now. You should. And, you know, it's also a testament of the time that they're made or the, the place that they're made. And it, it gives you a perspective that you normally wouldn't. But they're also potent propaganda. Oh yeah. If used in that way. They are they are always a they are always slanted. There is no such thing as an impartial documentary. I mean, even, you know, taking something like Andy Warhol's Empire, which is a fifteen hour locked off shot of the Empire State Building with no cuts, even that has a viewpoint because you chose to film the Empire State Building. <laughs> yeah. And that's part of the magic. That's part of the charm, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, a good documentary makes you reflect on the world around you. And that's what I love about the form. That's what I really, really love about it. And a good documentary is exciting, maybe in a sad way, but sometimes in a happy way, too. Yay. Yay. Wendy loves happy films. And I also love that so many of them are available because... There, it, it seems that the people who make and distribute documentaries are much more amenable to having them out on uh, streaming channels because a lot of times when you make a documentary, you want your message to be heard rather than trying to keep it safe from pirates. You know, <laughs> you you, uh, you want the, the film out in front of people's eyes. So you go out on Netflix and you go out on Hulu. There are so many good documentaries out there to watch. So well, it's. It's almost its own investigative journalism. So of course you want the story to be heard and seen Mm -hmm. because that was the point is I have investigated this thing because I want you to know about it. I want you to know about this small slice of reality because there's something important that's happening here and you could miss it unless I told you about it. Mm -hmm. I want to tell you about it. I want to tell you about it. Yeah. Good time. Good time, Joe. So Melissa, it is time for our Xanadu Cinema Pleasure Dome recommendations. Do you have one for this week? Oh, fuck if I know. Give me a second. <laughs> I have one. I have one. Okay. okay. Now, I don't know when this is going to go up, but listeners, when we're recording it, it's the beginning of November, and the latest James Bond film is about to open in a couple of days. And so I recommend to you a game called Spyfall. <laughs> well chosen. I feel really good about this choice. Uh-huh, uh-huh. This this is a game. I played this recently at a a wedding that was both a wedding and a gaming retreat. You got to fucking love my life, man, right? You should be jealous right now. So here's the thing. In this game, one of you gets chosen as the spy and everybody else is other people. They are all in a specific location and given specific roles in in that location. So let's say they're all in a nightclub. So one person's the bouncer, one person is the bartender, one person is a waitress, one person is just a patron, somebody else is maybe uh, the DJ, right? And then there's one person who is the spy. Everybody knows where they are except the spy and it becomes a race. All of the people who know where they are are trying to figure out who is the spy. And the spy is trying to figure out where am I? 
And it's a game where you ask questions of one another and you listen to the answers to see if they make sense. But if people are answering in their character, it might lead you astray. Like, why would you answer like that? That doesn't make any sense. Well, oh, you're the birthday clown here at this party. Of course you would answer like that, but it made you look suspicious. So I think you're the spy. Oh, and so it's a really fun party game and I cannot recommend it highly enough. And it's basically a game where the mechanic is just cards that you deal out. And then you just, you just have to know how to ask the right question. And so if you're a fan of, uh, of James Bond, I think you're going to like this game. I had a really good time playing it. I really recommend it. Yay. Spyfall. Melissa, what do you have? I would like to peek. Codenames, which was a game that Wendy and I both discovered over the same gaming wedding weekend. Oh my god, we had so much fun playing this game! Oh my god, yeah! So it's another spy game, and um, the setup is there are twenty five cards out on the table, and each of them has one word, and there are two people at the head of the table who are each on a different team. The rest of the players are on one team or the other. So there's a blue team and a red team. So the blue, say the blue team has a bunch of people who are guessing and one person who's giving the clues. And so the person at the head of the table is able to give a one word clue that might apply to one or more cards on the table. And so they might say shark two, and then the rest of their team has to guess which two words on the table apply to the clue shark. So well, it's trick- word association. It, yeah, it's, it's word association. It's word association, but it, it gets tricky because each of those cards out on the table represent either a bystander, a red spy, a blue spy, or the assassin. And if your team selects the spy of the wrong color, they just helped out the other team. If they find their spy, hooray, they can keep doing some guesses. If they find a bystander, their turn is over and it goes to the other team. If they find the assassin, the game is over and they lose. So it does not behoove you to to guess wildly. And the clue giver has to be invested in giving clues that will only lead their team to their colored cards and not to any of the other squares on the board. Especially so. not to the assassin. Have yeah. Did you play as a clue giver? No, I didn't. It is so frustrating because you give a clue that you think is super clear and then you watch your team go wildly astray and you're just like, no. <laughs> That's so not what I meant. Oh, no, you're going to touch the assassin. No! (laughs) It's horrifying. But if you're the clue giver, you have to remain absolutely stony-faced with no response. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's horrifying. It's so horrifying. It's such a fun game. It really is. It is is really great. And uh, (laughs) that that round that Wendy's talking about, I was on the the team with... uh, Eric Knight, former guest of the show, who is uh, notably pedantic. And oh my God, we talked ourselves out of so many good choices. <laughs> you did. You did. And I'm just sitting there watching you going, what are you doing? Stop. No. And then when they would finally pick it, I'm like, about goddamn 
fucking time. I don't need to be stoic anymore because that I was trying to tell you that three turns ago. (laughs) 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 I'm a bad clue giver. Anyway, that's a really good game. Yeah, I really like the game. So, dear listeners, that was our documentaries and our board games of the week. And uh, oh, hold on. Wendy's making a face. There we go. Got it. <laughs> I made we'll it just that in the show you. notes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So those were our recommendations in every sense of the word. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, all of our home. recommendations. Go watch some documentaries and learn some shit, okay? You'll, you'll enjoy it. Yeah, it's good for you. It's good for you. It's, it's you know what? It helps stave off Alzheimer's. Okay. I'm, I'm sure that. of it. I don't know. There's probably <laughs> research. <laughs> I could do a documentary about how watching documentaries staves off Alzheimer's or Works something. Me. All right. So this yep. has been right. Xanadu Cinema Pleasure Dome, and we have been drinking for your pleasure. I have been Melissa, and this has been... Windy. And we will check in with you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us in the Xanadu Cinema Pleasure Dome. Our theme song was written by Tim Wick and Jeffrey Brown and recorded and mastered by Chad Dutton. New episodes arrive every Thursday. You can find us on iTunes and on Stitcher. You can also visit us at xanaducinema.com, follow us on Twitter at Xanadu Cinema, and like us on Facebook at Xanadu Cinema Pleasure Dome. There's a double feature of terror, right? Active killing, dear Zachary, just go for it. I got a bottle of wine. I'm doing this tonight. Yes.